and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. You know, we'll start right off with a reminder. A reminder? Yes, a reminder that time is running out to get your team started over at FantasyGP.com and join the league. And remember, it's you can't just create your team and go, okay, we're good, we're going to take everybody on. you got to remember to join the league at one four eight three one. Four nine one. That's the league code. So you can be part of our league and you can prove that you can pick F1 winners better than the boy. That would be the goal. So, yes, I'm, I'm looking at you, Danny, and Jim, and Todd, and everybody else who's out there that I know you're listening and you haven't gone and actually created your, your team and joined the league. I think it's key that we remind people that in order to get the ultimate bloke in the bird prize, bragging rights, actually, okay. um, you have to be part of the league. So don't, don't just enter, create the team. You can't win. Yeah, don't just create the team, but join the league too. We know you're listening and you haven't done it yet. Um, now, even after the, uh, the season starts, you can create your team and still join the league, but you're going to be down points. So why give up points if you don't have to? Well, that's what Haas has been saying for years. <laughs> okay. If only the folks at Sauber felt the same way. Well, they give up points because they have to. They did not have to go with the previous year's engines last year. They did because that's the deal Monisha signed. Well, my point exactly. So let's talk a little Formula E first. A couple of things happened this weekend. For starters, it was the, I think, third running of the Punta del Este race right on the waterfront in Uruguay. It's actually kind of a neat-looking track. What I will say for starters in watching, because we watched the qualifying. We didn't watch the race. Formula E's come a long way since that first season. Watching the cars, they're really move. You, you can see that there's some speed in place, and of course, because you can't hear the engines, and they're not playing the dumb soundtrack that they had played in the first race that we saw. You can hear the tires straining to keep the cars from slamming into a wall and sometimes failing. The tire squall was pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, the way Formula E qualifying works is they break the entire grid up into four groups. Each group goes out together, or, or each group, the it, individual group, everybody, all the drivers in that group go out, out together, set a time, go through the next group. Based on the fastest times, the top five go, go into what they call the Super Bowl pole lap something or other. But that's how they fi figure out who's going to get pole. So... Down at Punta El Este, at the or, or yeah Punta del Este, not El Este. There's a high speed chicane at turn fourteen and fifteen. Now, through all of the the four group qualifying sessions, folks came close to the head at the inside of that chicane. There's a bollard. It's a little flexible thing that if you hit it, it doesn't do too much damage. Um, through the group qualifyings. Everybody that happened to have clipped that bollard ended up in a wall. Hmm. So kind of game over, go away. Well, for some reason in the Super Bowl qualifying, in that last poll thing, folks figured out how to, three of, four, three of five drivers figured out how to clip that bollard and not end up in a wall and set fastest laps. Now, one of them clipped it and broke their front wing, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um 
the thing that I noticed as I was seeing them do this is that they hit that bollard, and they were moving really fast, but when they zoomed in and played it in slow motion, all four wheels of the car were outside the white lines denoting the track. Correct. Which had me wondering as to the legality of said move. And sure enough, at the end of Oliver Turvey's lap, who was the first one to do this, um, they announced he was under investigation. Um, shortly thereafter, by um, Alex Lynn doing the same thing and ending up under investigation, and Lucas Degrassi doing the same thing and ending up under investigation. Well, as a result, and, and they spoke to Lucas Degrassi and I think somebody else, and their response, was, or, or Oliver Turvey, and, well, th their response was, well, we thought that bollard was there for, just for driver reference. It didn't mark the limits of the track. While the broadcasters are going, no, that's the limit of the track. We don't know what's going on here and why they did this. Well, the stewards declared that they had exceeded the limits of the track and nullified the pole laps for all three of them, which meant Lucas Degrassi, who originally set the fastest time, lost it to John Eric Verne. Oh, we know John Eric Verne. Yes, John Eric Verne, who, by the way, is leading the points in Formula E this season. Oh. Um, but he uh, ended up on the pole and winning the race. Okay. The whole race, now we didn't watch the race, but the whole race apparently featured a battle between Lucas Degrassi and Jean-Eric Verne for the win. Um, and it was very hard, hard fought. In the end, no, Verne won with Lucas Degrassi second. Okay. Okay, great. However, we found out after the race that Lucas Degrassi received uh, a 10,000 euro penalty and given three penalty points for his for his race what did he do wrong did he hit the bollard again he did not um the statement that was really or the bulletin that was released by the fia stated that after checking the clothes helmet and frontal head restraint or the hands device same thing of the drivers it was found that the driver lucas degrassi wore short flame resistant underwear pants which are not allowed by the international sporting code he wore the wrong underpants. Yes. What is allowed by the International Sporting Code? Um, different ones. <laughs> okay, so you don't know. So, so the statement said that the driver apologized, and the stewards consider that in this case a fine is sufficient. Penalty points have to be added because of the incident against safety regulations. So now Lucas explained... Um, what happened he said that it was a mistake which was by my part it should never happen it was something that i'm used to using it, it was not something that i'm used to using it was a decision that i took today because of the extreme heat and i ran out of underwear and didn't want to use a wet one so i put a new one on we did all the safety that was required with the seat belts with the pit stops everything that is actually really important for safety was done and I didn't think this underwear issue would be any issue. But, of course, I must be aware that I should wear a compliant kit during a race. So that's right. He wore the wrong underpants, and it cost him 10,000 euros. 
Okay, this is why your mommy says <laughs> pack well, that's an extra what he, pair. That's what he was trying to do. He put on clean because he put on clean underwear. It cost him ten thousand euros. But because he didn't bring another set of extra underwear, he had how all many, wet underwear. How many kids are now going to turn around and look at their mom when she goes, "Make sure you have clean underwear," and go, "But mom, when Lucas did this, he got fined ten thousand euros." None. This, exactly this, none. This none is, are going to do that. This is a strike against moms everywhere. No, because mom said <laughs> that he should have packed more pairs of compliant underpants. Why did he have non-compliant underpants? That's the other thing that I have to ask. Why didn't he just have sufficient compliant underpants? Well, the, the question that I have is that he wasn't penalized for wearing non flame retardant underwear it was for wearing non-compliant flame retardant underwear how many pairs of flame retardant underwear does a driver have obviously more than two <laughs> i mean i have to give him points and you know credit for the fact that he didn't want to go out in wet underpants i i, I get that i mean that would have been icky now, you would think that if he's on a decent team that they might have you know like access to a laundromat you know maybe like a dryer or something i mean if if i remember correctly there's about a four hour because the qualifying is run on the same day as um the race at most formula e races so if i remember correctly there's like a four hour gap between the end of qualifying and the start of the race so you got to figure at least two hours would have been available to get him some clean underwear dry underwear i mean i i get that they couldn't wander down to the local Macy's and say, hey, I need a pack of flame Flame retardant underwear that's compliant with FIA rules, but still. (laughs) I mean, could he go knocking on the door of another, you know, another team? Hey, what do you get? (laughs) My question is, you know, you see those like um, the the blowers and stuff that they use to blow out the brake dust in the, the cars. Could they not have aimed one of that at a pair of wet underwear? Yeah, I mean, Hey, you mechanic, why don't you go dry Lucas's underwear? Yeah. New low in your career. Dry the dra- the race driver's underpants. Hey, it's a team. <laughs> there are no small jobs in a team. No, there are. <laughs> there are. Hey, while we're while we're talking about Formula E, we had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that one of the big changes that was coming to the 2018-2019 Formula E season was that um, they were going to be able to run the race in the same car. There wouldn't be a change in cars halfway through the race to make sure the batteries could do it. Right. Well, part of the way that Formula E is managing this is that they're shortening the races. Okay. Um Current races in the current season have been around 48 minutes uh, to an hour in that area. Uh, they're actually going to be shortening the races down to 40 minutes. Mm. Okay, so they're losing about eight minutes. Yeah, and it's probably going to work out to about eight laps or so. But the trade-off on that is that they were only getting about 24 minutes per battery, and now they can get 40 minutes out of that battery. So that's that's pretty significant, right? Yeah. So over to Formula One. First thing I, I need to point out is that ESPN has actually 
put together an F1 site. You mean they've acknowledged that they are carrying F1? Kind of. Okay. So if you go to ESPN.com and you look at the sports that are listed on the page, good luck finding Formula One. Okay. You got to go to the three dots, and then even there, I think it's like racing. It's not even listed as motorsport or anything like that. And then you can finally make your way over to it, as opposed to ESPN.co.uk. It's right up in the top bar there of F1. However, you can get directly to the ESPN site by going to ESPN.com slash F1. We'll take you right over there. So they still haven't fully acknowledged that they're covering Formula One. However, they have uh, released their broadcast times. Okay. The good news of their broadcast schedule, and we're not going to go through it because it's fairly detailed. Go over to the ESPN site. You can check it all out if you're interested. Otherwise, just set your DVR. That'll work because now that they've released the schedule, most of the DVRs have it, so you can take care of that. Um the good news is that they're covering all three practice sessions for every race. They will air that. Um, most of them are on either ESPN3 or ESPN News, should you have one of those two networks. Okay. Um, qualifying and race. Um, the bad news is that it does not appear that there is any pre- or post-race coverage. Which is what we can we were concerned about when they were re-airing the sky coverage. Yeah. So that's a bit disappointing. But you can check that out over at ESPN.com slash F1. Don't try and find it by navigating through their website. It, it takes too long. So there's been some discussion in the Formula One world coming out of testing over things that Renault and others may be doing with exhaust gas. Oh. Now, this is exhaust gas from the car, just to be clear. Not, not other not, exhaust not gases, not, not, not other exhaust gases that might be going on. Um, but Renault was trialing, uh, trialing, trialing at testing. Is that a word? It is really, it really is. All right, the next game of Scrabble that I beat you in, I'm totally trialing it. Now, it, it might be in the UK version of the dictionaries <laughs> as opposed to the US version of the dictionaries, but it is a word. Uh, but they were playing with an exhaust that appeared to be angled up to blow the exhaust gases over the rear wing, which is questionable under the current rules. Um, We still don't know whether or not this is legit, whether or not it's going to happen. But one of the things that the FIA has said is that, hey, you cannot play with the engine modes of the engine to modify, I guess, the volume of the exhaust gases and where they're coming out of the car to affect aerodynamic performance. They are still fighting the battle over blown exhaust gases. And I still go back to, who cares? (laughs) If they want to do it, let them do it. Who cares? But it gives people an advantage and we can't have that at the pinnacle of motorsport no advantages can possibly be happening unless it's ferrari but the thing is if all the teams are doing it and they're all working out ways to do it better are they really getting that much of an advantage 
are they getting any much more of an advantage than having an engine that won't blow up in the middle of a race? Well, I think that that would be key. Yeah. Non-blowing up engines, definitely a first step towards an advantage. Now, I'm with you. I think blown – I honestly think the, the concept of a blown exhaust and being able to, to direct that for aerodynamical advantage, mm-hmm. I think it's a really cool idea. And I think that it has the potential – and this is the, the thing that I, get, I complain about, Formula One about. It has the potential to allow for different teams to approach where they put that exhaust in different locations. Yep. And I think that we have lost something – in the design, can I say it that way? When our rules are such that essentially you wind up with 10 identical cars. And there's so little differences between the cars these days because it's like this one thing might get you a 10,000th of a second advantage. And that's those are key items, but there's so little difference. I mean, you look back at over time, and you look at the six-wheeled car of Tyrell. Yeah. Or you, you look at risks that were taken on the track in car design, and they were big risks. And, and you know, unlike some of those risks um, that were taken back in the 70s and early 80s, which truly did put the drivers at rest, you know, the, the, the flimsy supports for the wings and stuff like that, and, and not really understanding what those effects were and the risk that they posed was one thing. But, you know, trying to control where your exhaust gases go, that, that's a different story. Now, I, I wouldn't be in support if, if this was like a variable fan nozzle or something that they could move around that i would agree that that's probably a bridge too far but in terms of where you go and and let the exhaust exit from the car that really who cares so what charlie had to say he said we were concerned with exhaust blowing last year with the wings becoming 150 millimeters lower than they were in 2016 there was more benefit to be gained that is why we put the exhaust pipe in the middle and with a minimum angle Teams managed to build monkey seats, which we managed to get rid of by changing the bodywork regulations, but there was still a little window of opportunity. You know what teams are like. If you take one thing away, they will try to get 10% of what they had, which is what they're supposed to do. That's exactly what they're supposed to do, Charlie. I mean, <laughs> that's, that, that's what they do. I will never forget that incredible interview with Adrian Newey where, and this was back when Red Bull just dominated. Um, I mean, this was back when Sebastian still drove mm-hmm. for them. And he had this, he did this interview and he said, says, it is my job as the aerodynamicist to look at the rules, to find where they are gray and exploit every ounce of that. Yeah. And to look at the edge of the rules. Be on the edge. And that, to me, is exactly what they should be doing. And And I have a problem that Charlie's goal seems to be around making sure that if anybody finds anything that's on an edge of a rule, we better quash it. As opposed to going, how if we can exploit it, how much better could it be? I think some of the argument is that um, the teams go and and they focus their development efforts around these and you get these development wars that cost money. But again, 
it's Formula One, and Formula One costs money. And I, th- but but that's what I think the argument it is is that these are areas that teams shovel tons of money into for minor effect or not particularly noticeable effect. Well, okay. If it's not noticeable effect, then they're wasting their own dollars. Well, what what I mean by noticeable is that as a fan watching it, you don't necessarily get to see it. But for the team, they may see a tenth to a quarter of a second shaved off a lap time, which is valuable. Which is valuable, and ultimately the fans do see that. I mean, that's yes, the thing. Y- yeah. No, will I see exactly how they've angled an exhaust or done something mm-hmm. like cookie no i will never see that i will never be that intense on those like minute details but will i see that a guy that used to be in fifth place is suddenly running in third or second because obviously his engineers got something right you better believe it yeah and I think that's what we have to celebrate. We shouldn't be seeking to kibosh it. We should seek to celebrate an engineer getting something right. No, I agree. And, and we've had this argument, and I don't think we'll ever get anywhere with the FIA, FIA over it. I know. And this is something that every time I have a conference call with them, I bring it up, and they still you know, shut me down. Right after they say hello. Yeah, well, so not only are they trying to crack down on trick engine modes, you know, we're we're, we're touching that topic. We're going to get even deeper now. We're going to talk tires? No, actually, um, Christian Horner is still concerned about the restrictions regarding oil burning. And he is pushing Charlie on this, and Charlie is responding. So the the new restrictions limit um, 0.6 liters of oil use per 100 kilometers. So Christian thinks that um, this restriction does not successfully prevent teams from burning oil and qualifying. That's what he says. So Charlie says that... He believes that what the FIA has put in place will be enough to take care of the issue that most of the world thinks is probably not an issue. Let's be clear here. What Charlie had to say is, we've closed down all the things that they were able to do last year, mainly via oil spec. Not only was oil being burned a little, but they were putting things in the oil to add combustion because there was no real oil spec last year. Now there is. Now they can only use approved oils, so they give us a sample just like they do with fuel, and that has to be approved, and that is the only oil that they can use. We've tightened up the engine rules in Article 5 of the technical regulations. You, and you saw that. You, you pointed out to me when you, when you discovered that. that they had <laughs> yes, yeah. in my nightly review of the technical regulations. Yes. Um, he says, and we've also routed the breather that can no longer go back into the air intake, which was the biggest issue. This has to go out the back like virtually every other racing car in the world. And we've told them that they can't use more than 0.6 liters per 100 kilometers. And all of those things combined, I think, will do the job. Now, Christian Horner's position is in qualifying, you don't run 100 kilometers. 
you run such a small amount that trying to figure out whether or not they exceeded that 0.6 liters per 100 kilometer limit has been broken is pretty much impossible in qualifying. That's his argument. Yeah. I think he needs to go after a different reason why Red Bull can't qualify very well. (laughs) Probably. Jean Todd, because we're sticking with the FIA and issues there. So Jean Todd uh, is responding, and there's been quite a lot of criticism from a lot of different channels. He's responding to the criticism about the halo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What he has had to say is, I'm amazed to hear some people say, okay, motor racing is dangerous. If it happens, it happens. Could you imagine how we would all feel if something happened and if we would have had the halo... It would not have happened. Um, he's dismissed the comments from a couple of weeks ago from Toto Wolf about taking the chainsaw to the halo and making it go away. And he also says, that, you know, he doesn't understand why the drivers are speaking up about this now and, and are upset about it because the GPDA came to them in December of 2015 and said, you have to do something. And he's going, we did something. Yeah, but this wasn't the something they wanted. That's, I think, the big thing and i i I call you know question about the the grand prix drivers association coming to them and saying you have to do something doing something is one thing but they also when they they did their vote and their position on the halo itself Mm -hmm. there was press around the fact that it was unanimous or the majority or whatever it was like literally one over half well the which essentially means half the drivers hate the thing yeah, but what he does say is completely correct. The GPDA did reach out to uh, the FIA and say, you've got to do something. And the drivers as a group in 2016 went came forward and said, don't back down. You've got to do something. The problem was there's only been two solutions put forward. And the development, I think, you could argue has been somewhat half-hearted. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the arguments against the halo, I think, is rapidly going away. Actually, a couple of the arguments against the halo is rapidly going away. One of those arguments is that, well, none of the junior series are doing it. None of the other series are looking at anything like this for cockpit head protection. And the next Formula E car will have a halo on it. Uh, Formula 2, they're going to have the halo on it this year. Um, IndyCar is actively looking at a solution for cockpit head, although it's going to be a different one. They're actively looking at a solution. It, it Cockpit head protection is being accepted by the other series, and most of them are doing a form of the halo. So I think that argument is starting to go away. Um, the ones about visibility, from what we're seeing, it sounds like those arguments are starting to go away as well. I think we'll know more in the coming months as we actually see them on cars being driven in anger <laughs> as opposed to in testing. Yeah. You know, I, I think really getting an understanding of the halo and visibility is going to come into focus as we get the car, especially off of Barcelona and onto a track like, oh, well, the street circuit over in Melbourne. Monaco, I think, is another one that's going to be very interesting to see how the halo impacts driving there. And even Spa, I think, is going to be a concern. I think we have to see what happens over the season. 
I also think that over time we may see the design shift may still be that T-shaped piece, Mm -hmm. but as materials get stronger and they start exploiting it for some aerodynamic pieces, I think that we also may see it get thinner over some time. Yeah, and there's been some talk about that too. The other thing that I I have real concerns about, and I think that this will be one of those things, is from what I am reading, the halo does slow down exit of a driver from the car. Yeah, we've heard that, and I think that's going to be a big question. And that's my bigger concern is because sometimes when you see these big bad crashes, getting the driver out is a very fast thing that needs to happen. Um I remember distinctly it was Melbourne a couple of years ago when Fernando Alonso decided to, you know, do the big uh, 360 rolls, lateral mm-hmm. rolls in his car. Um, his Even his comment afterwards was, I knew I had to get out of the car as fast as possible to show my mother I was okay. And, and that's one of the questions because, you know, the way that car landed, he was able to get out of that car because the body work was such that, even though the car was up against the wall, he had enough room to climb out. With the halo in play, I don't know if that's going to be an option in a similar situation. And that's my concern because the minute we trap a driver, we're going to have a new set of concerns. Yeah. And quite frankly, from what I every, every TV show, every uh, history of the deadly years of the Grand Prix, Mm-hmm. There were some very specific, contri- common contributing factors to that, and trapping drivers in a car was one of the keys. Yeah, that was that was number two. Number one being fire, and I think um, Formula One and and all the race series for that matter have effectively managed the risk of a car bursting into flames. Well, cars still burst into flames. They, I mean, they do they, that, they but they do, do it in such a way that protects the safety cell. Well, there's that, but they also don't burst into flames the way we saw them doing it 30 years ago. When they burst into flames, the entire car was quickly engulfed. Right. I mean, we saw Kimi Raikkonen pull into the pits, what was it, last year with fire shooting out of the engine intake over his head, and that was where it was contained to. That's what I mean is we still see cars bursting into flames, Mm -hmm. but we see it in a controlled way. And typically the safety cell, the part that holds the driver, Mm -hmm. is protected from that. The stuff around the driver itself is not – flames are not preventing that driver from getting out of the car. And that's that was like the first thing. But trapping a driver in a car and then it bursting into flames, that was the combination of true deadliness. Um, and, I mean, trapping a driver in a car in all sorts of different ways is a bad thing. And the thought that you would have to move the car with the driver in it in order to extract them scares me because we also know that we have to stabilize the driver in the process of moving them if they have been hurt. So there's all sorts of things like that. These are all concerns. So in other FIA news, Mm -hmm. you'll recall last year, mid to late last year, we got word that the assistant race director for Formula One, Herbie Blash, was retiring. Right. You applied for his job. I did. I I didn't get hired. Um, Instead, Formula One or the FIA hired, and and, well, actually they promoted Laurent Meckes into the role of assistant race director. Now, 
after, if you recall, what was it, towards the end of the previous year or the, or, or the end of last year, Renault signed the former technical head at the FIA, Marcin Budkowski, to a technical role with the company. There was a lot, the, the teams were really kind of ticked off about that because this was the guy who saw all of the technical details of every single car. Mm-hmm. And now he was leaving. Now, he went on gardening leave for, for quite a few months, but he was going on leave to go join Renault, which pissed a lot of the teams off. Well, the agreement that was made by all of the teams as a result of Renault signing Marcin Budkowski was that the teams would wait a minimum of 12 months um, if they hired somebody from the FIA before they started working on a team. There'd be gardening leave and things like that. Well, Laurent Mekis announced this week that he was leaving Formula One in his role as the assistant race director, where he has not served for a single race. He was leaving Formula One to take a position with Ferrari. Oh, my. Three months is his time, and then he was supposed to start at Ferrari. So much for that 12 months, huh? Understandably, some of the teams are pretty ticked off. So much for the 12 months. Yeah. Now, do you think that the FIA regrets not hiring you, who would have assured been more committed to the role than never having served in a race? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I, I, I think they're, they're certainly regret, regretting the fact that um, they didn't hire me for that role. Um now, the fact but, that you're wholly unqualified has nothing to do with it. Well, you know, there was – and one of the thing, one of the many things that the FIA is pissed off about this whole thing is that in the offseason and in the time since they, they promoted Laurent – or they named Laurent for this role as assistant uh, race director, he did all kinds of training. There, there was all kinds of prep work for him to take this position and to move into this role. All of that is now out the window. He will not be serving as the assistant race director in Melbourne because he can't now because of the gardening leave requirements and all that. The problem is they don't have an assistant race director now for Melbourne. Herbie Blash can't come back because he's the only other person who's qualified to do this. He can't come back to do it. He's got a conflict. I'm guessing I mean, how that, serious is this conflict? I, I'm guessing that conflict is along the lines of not wanting to have to deal with a 12-plus hour time change and a 16-hour flight and the hotel rooms and all of the other stuff that comes with a Grand Prix weekend in Australia when you don't live in Australia. That'd be my guess. But I mean, how serious is this conflict? I mean, maybe he could reschedule. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Charlie is asking. I mean, poor Charlie. He's going to wind up having to do all of the duties for one race by himself. And that's only if they can name somebody and get that training started. And then, of course, my big question is, what's in that training that has an advantage to Ferrari? That's a key question. That, that, that is one of the – I mean, why do you go that quickly? And, and still, an, assi- an assistant race director, one of the things they haven't done is they have not – explain Ferrari hasn't announced what the position is that Laurent will be taking just that it is an unnamed technical position with the team so what information if any did Laurent Mekis have in his role that is of value to Ferrari that's my question Mm -hmm. I mean it's one thing to you know you can quickly see oh you've had access to every uh, engine design of every car on the track that has an advantage to somebody, but in the race director role, 
what do you know that isn't necessarily common knowledge? Yeah. So with the struggles that uh, the FIA is having in getting someone to fill the role of assistant race director, it has led uh, Steve Matchett, yes, that Steve Matchett, to openly wonder whether or not the role of uh, assistant race director is becoming for the FIA just like Hogwarts' version of the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting to hear that Steve Matchett was throwing his hat in the ring for such a job. No, he's apparently commentating for Formula E in the U.S. now oh, with Fox he? Sports. Is he? Yes. He, he, his first race commentating for Formula E was actually this past weekend um, for the Punta del Este race. Did he explain the tires in graphic detail? I do not know. We did not watch that. <laughs> we watched the UK's Channel 5 coverage of the qualifying. Which, as I was listening to it, because I was making cookies in another room, mm -hmm. um, while I was listening to it, I noticed a lot of American accents. Um, there was only two. There was Actually, there was only one. I stand corrected. Um, Bob Varsha is the lead commentator. That's for who I kept hearing. And I think it's the FIA's commentary i don't even think it's necessarily channel five's commentary the other voice that you heard um is from bb and i just lost his name um he does the the five live radio commentary for the last two years now um not ben edwards because ben edwards is with channel four um oh the name i just lost the name you hear him on every one of the five live podcasts as well. But anyway. Okay. So, also with Ferrari, Jean Todd, president of the FIA, is uh, a little upset with Ferrari. He is pushing that Ferrari lose their rules veto. Really? Yes. What he has to say is that the veto was at the time of Enzo Ferrari, and he was isolated in Marinello. That was the only team supplying engine and chassis against some other teams that were all powered by Ford. So at this time, it was decided that being away from what is called the Silicon Valley of motorsport, they needed to have a protection. That is the story of the veto. But personally, I feel now I, I, feel now I am not in favor of that times have changed and he is pushing for with the whatever replaces the concord agreement in 2021 does not include a veto vote for ferrari oh yeah which of course sergio marchioni you know with him already saying that keep going in the direction you're going with the engines he's going to pull out of formula one now you're going to attack the veto power that ferrari has really makes you wonder now Toto Wolf has come out and said that he does not recommend that the FIA provoke Sergio Marchione now remember Mercedes as of late has been aligning themselves very closely with Ferrari with this idea around the rules and commercial agreements and stuff like that if one turns around and says that they want something the other tends to back them We've heard this from Christian Horner. We've heard this from the folks over at Force India. We've heard this from the folks over at, at uh, um, Sauber as well, that Mercedes and Ferrari, 
both seem to be very closely aligned in the strategy group and the motorsports council meetings. Um, so yet Toto says, don't provoke Sergio Marchione. I think that F1 needs Ferrari more than Ferrari needs F1. Now, where have we heard that before? Oh, let's see. He has bad hair. He's old. And his mother-in-law has been kidnapped in Brazil. Was. Not has. Was. They, they did get her back. <laughs> She's not still kidnapped. Was kidnapped. So uh, Toto goes on to say... Um, and he, speaking of Sergio Marchione, he has an understanding and a vision of what the DNA in Formula One needs to represent Ferrari. And he is a no-nonsense guy. If he doesn't see the value for his brand, he is going to call it a day. Very easy, with no regret. So you better not mess with him. Don't poke the bear. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see where that goes. That could be interesting. Um... If you remember, as we were coming to the wrap-up of testing, we mentioned that Mercedes did not use the ultra-soft tires at all. The hypersofts. You're right. The hypersofts. They did not use the hypersofts. And why? Well, according to uh, Toto Wolf, they believe that this is a, quote, survival tire. Um, all the teams have seemed to come away with the idea that the Hypersoft is really only good for about a lap. So this is a qualifying tire, and that's about it. Um, so what Toto had to say was that we decided not to use the Hypersoft because we felt it is a tire that is usable for one lap only, and that in testing it is about collecting data and understanding setups. The Hypersoft, the Hypersoft is just an additional step in grip from the Ultrasoft. It will be a qualifying tire, and we felt that we would rather concentrate on the development work than on a single lap. I think the Hyper will be a qualifying tire only, and you just need to hang on to it in the first couple of laps and survive. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea of, okay, if you set your fastest time on that Hypersoft, yes, you're going to start the race on that tire, but you're going to try and, you know, you'll you'll throw down a couple of blistering ones as quick as you can and then get off of it. Um, which, you know, makes you wonder, okay, so you, you dump that a team that, that qualifies on the Hypersoft. Are they then going to go to a significantly harder tire because they're going to need to do a, an early pit stop and then not pit the rest of the race? Are we looking at anything that we see a Hypersoft with one-stop races? That'll be interesting to see how they approach that because, I mean, you got to figure, you know, if you qualify on the Hypersoft – and you start the race, you're going to eat 20 to 30 seconds within the first five laps of the race to get off of that tire. Can you get out that far? And then if if nobody else surrounds you, because now you're going to come back in mid-pack, then you got to wait for the other people to start having their pit stops to, to trickle in so that the field mm-hmm. goes back to its original well, that's going to be the question is, what are the other teams around you running? If you're the only one on Hypersofts, that's a big disadvantage. But if everybody else who are in that the, 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 the top 10, if all of them are, were running Hypersofts as well, and, and actually, no, you wouldn't necessarily have that. Because remember, you're... The tire that you set your fastest lap on in Q2, not Q2. Q3, 
right. is the tire you start on. So that's the thing is can you set your Q2 lap not on the hypersoft so that you can start the race on something better and well, then drop to the hypersoft in Q3 to get the fastest time? Yeah, because that's the thing is if you, make, if you set it on the harder tire, make it up into Q3, run it on the hyper, you start on the harder tire. But if you don't make it up into Q3, you get tire choice. Right. But then even you're still not going to want to jump to the hypers to start your race. You're with. not going to want to jump. You're not going to want to do the hypers in the race at all if you can avoid it. But the thing is, I mean, think about the think about the strategy of this. If you could start the race even further back in the top ten and not have to start it on a hyper, you don't have to take that pit stop in the first few laps. You could by default move up in the grid. Because you can stay out on your tires. What the, the question's going to be, and, and the teams are starting to gather this information, and Pirelli has this information, and we don't. But truly what the, the, the question is going to be is what that time advantage is mm -hmm. between the tires. And th there has been some rumblings that they may not be nearly as high as the teams originally thought. And if that's the case... We could see some interesting tire strategies, and we could see the hypers go go away and never come back. Well, I don't know if you saw the article, and I don't have it pulled up to give you the details, but I did see um, a note that the top three teams going into Melbourne all have very different tire strategies. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want. And I, I, I realized that with the, you know, they used to only give them two choice, you know, you had two tires everybody ran some combination of those two tires now they have three tires to pick from for every race and they wanted people to pick different tire strategies and i think this is the first time we're starting to like see them actually try it yeah so um that should be kind of interesting but can we stop talking about tires yet yeah let's let's actually move on toro rosso is learning that there's some huge benefits to being a works team so they've never been a works team before. Oh. So they're learning not only are there huge benefits to being a works team, but when you have a Honda who's trying to prove that they really can do this kind of a thing and they're trying to redeem themselves after being kicked to the curb by McLaren, there's some even bigger benefits. Okay, pray tell. What are these benefits? So Franz Toast says, it's a big difference, believe me. This starts with the design of the car. In the past, we just got a power unit, and suppliers said, look, this is the power unit with the pipes with all the aggregates. Just put it into your car. He says, now our designers are sitting together with the Honda engineers. They think, okay, how can we create the oil tank, for example, in front of the engine? How to put it in a best possible way into the chassis? or the exhaust system. This is a big impact on the aerodynamics on the side of the car. Also, when you get the hot air from radiators to the back, where do you get it out? In former times, we just had to find the way, and now we are discussing it with Honda. He says that this is also the first time that they've gotten the engine mappings that they've been able to actually have an impact on. He said, in the past, normally they get the engine onto the dyno. It's here's the black box, plug it in. This is what you get. Figure out how to make it work. But with Honda, he says, you should see all the smiling faces of the engineers when they come back to, from the dyno run with the gearbox and the power unit. They said, hey, we could change the mappings during the running. 
if they turn around, you know, the, the, the Toro Rosso engineers get an idea of, well, what if you tweak this or what if you change that? The Honda guys go, all right, let's try it and see what happens. And they change the stuff for them as opposed to it's a sealed box. You can't touch it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Toro Rosso's really excited about this partnership. Um, combined with the fact that there really weren't any engines that blew up in testing. Hey, that's big. Yeah. Um, over at Renault, you know, they're, they're still building a the team. They're, they're trying to uh, rebuild all of the things that were lost since uh, Renault last owned the team. And uh, then it was sold to Lotus and the financial problems and, and the gutting of the facilities. Um, Rob Bell, who's the chief technical officer over at Renault, has said that um, Renault isn't just going to go and write a blank check and say, okay, whatever you need, go buy it so you can become a top competitor. Um, what he says is that our team is being managed from the top in a very sensible way. He says, I suppose one way to look at it is to say we were sixth in the championship last year, and we need to get into the position to comfortably maintain fourth place in the future. Force India has been able to achieve that, so we ought to be able to do the same job with r roughly similar resources. That's clear. Until we can do that and demonstrate to Renault in particular that we're capable of achieving that, they're not going to start writing checks for a lot more people or resources. We have to prove ourselves every step of the way. Once we've done that, we can start the discussion of what it's going to take to move into the top three or take on Mercedes, Ferrari, and Red Bull because they are in another league again in terms of resources. So translation, do not expect Renault to be competing for a world championship this year or next year. And do not expect them to be all of a sudden getting a massive cash influx if they're not at least nipping at Force India's heels. I think that makes sense. It does. You know, when I first saw this story, I thought it was kind of silly. And then I learned more about it and realized what was going on. Not a, This is a brilliant idea. So McLaren has announced that a new partnership with Gandhi's. Now, you probably haven't heard of Gandhi's. Um, the simple form, the, the, the non-marketing speak, is that they make flip-flops. Okay. And they're placing the Gandhi's logo on the front of the halo. Which, which has been likened to a flip-flop. Flip but there's more to it than that. There's more to the brand. There's more to what's going on that actually makes this really cool. Now, this is just a one-time deal for them. It's just for Australia, so we're not going to see this later on. But Gandhi's officially is a British lifestyle brand founded by Rob and Paul Forkin, who are brothers. They founded it after their parents died in the December 2004 tsunami that struck Southeast Asia. Um, Gandhi's success enabled the Forkhand brothers to open a charitable foundation called Orphans for Orphans in Sri Lanka, where their parents were killed, and the company and its charity work has grown since. As we mentioned, its deal with McLaren means that the Gandhi's branding will fe feature on its halos in Melbourne next week. Now, as part of this, um, they're the first brand... And, and this is Gandhi saying, this is the first, they will be the first brand to take advantage of the unique shape of the new for 2018 Halo cockpit protection structure, which has frequently been compared to the distinctive upper of a flip flop. Gandhi's will also produce a special McLaren inspired flip flop dubbed a Halo edition by the team, 
with 100% of profits going to the Orphans for Orphans Foundation. Oh, that's cool. I told you. That's cool. So it's a limited edition, and I'm going to assume it's only available in the UK and maybe Australia. But it's a limited edition flip-flop, which is in the um, papaya orange color with, with blue numbers on it. Um, that, yeah, all the profits are going to Orphans for Orphans. Cool. So a very unique idea. It, it was, I, I think it's kind of brilliant. And then this last one, which all these these stories that have, have jumped up and, and, and latched onto this headline that, honestly, when I read it, I was like, well, duh. Oh, you, you guys couldn't figure this out? The headline was... Fernando Alonso has said he considered quitting Formula One at the end of last season. I thought we all knew that. With and and all none of the articles had after it the the what should have been understood statement of duh. <laughs> I mean, did you not really? listen to what he said multiple times all season long? Yeah. All right. So to, that was your last story, right? That was my last story. And it really wasn't – there's not a point in having much more than just the – well, of course he did. <laughs> All right. So I want to round this out to a three-series podcast. Okay. Because I want to mention that um, quick recovery wishes go out from the bloke and the bird to A.J. Foyt. Yes, that A.J. Foyt. Yes, that one. He apparently is 83 years old. He is the most winningest driver in the IndyCar series um, and retired sometime in the 80s. He has been attacked for a second time and survived from killer bees. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, no, apparently he was running a bulldozer around his West Texas ranch, knocked over a tree and angered a swarm. Of hive. Hive. Okay, so the hive then swarmed, right? And um, he uh, took refuge in a pickup truck and was stung repeatedly. Um, he was not stung this time as many times as he was stung in the 2005 incident where he had a run-in with killer bees. Um, but this has got greater risk because his body apparently is already hypersensitive to the venom that is contained. Yeah. In the killer bees. And he's 83 years old. And it does not help that he's 83 years old. Apparently, in 2005, when he was stung, he had over 200 stings on his head alone. Yeah. That's not the rest of his body. His head, his his face, his eyes, and his ears. Can you imagine getting bee stings in your eyeballs? Yeah, that, that doesn't sound fun. No. Um, he says he is doing well. He has been released from the hospital. He is on a metric ton of medication, according sure. to A.J. Foyt himself. He is missing the 12 hours of Sebring race, which was the last race that he won. Now, he wasn't going to be driving in the race. No, but he was going to be the marshal of the race, and it was going to be a special celebration for him. And I think they were actually bringing the car that he and his co-driver um one in to the racetrack and he will be missing that event um which i believe might have been yesterday yes it was uh so there so he missed that but he is recovering in his west texas ranch and hopefully they have figured out how to relocate or dispose of the uh hive of africanized killer bees fire and lots of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.